Dick Lucas is now 97, but for many years he was the rector of St. Helens uh, Bishopsgate, uh, Anglican Church in the financial district, right in the heart of the financial district in London. And of all the people I heard preach and teach me how to preach uh, while I lived in the UK and Ireland, uh, Dick Lucas was one of the ones I learned the most from. But one of my favorite illustrations from Dick Lucas concerned an essay that he read in which the author wrote this. The author said, I'd love to believe in God. I really would, but it is impossible. I could believe in God if someone would just give me a watertight argument, a watertight proof without a single hole, one from which there's no escaping. Then I could believe, end quote. And Dick Lucas's response to that was this. He said, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight argument, though I know some disagree with me. What God has provided you and me with is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is the watertight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. We're currently in a sermon series in which we're exploring the authentic Jesus, taking a close look at the primary sources of the gospel in order to better understand who this watertight person Jesus is, uh, what he did, and why he matters. And today we come to the topic of Jesus and his authoritative teaching, which frankly for a preacher is a bit of a daunting thing to take on, because if you've ever had or read one of those Bibles that puts all of Jesus's words in red letters, well, that's essentially what we've got to cover this morning. I hope you don't have any other plans for today, because even if you were to take out the duplicated quotes of Jesus in the Gospels, that still leaves us with 31,426 words. That's a lot to deal with. But you'll be glad to hear that we're going to narrow our focus this morning to just the Sermon on the Mount, and not even the entire sermon today. We're just going to be thinking about the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And part of the reason for us taking this part of Scripture as our example of Jesus' authoritative preaching is because of what the Gospel writer Matthew tells us was the reaction of the crowds when they came to the end, when Jesus came to the end of the sermon. Matthew says this in chapter 7 of his gospel, 28 to 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew tells us that Jesus's audience was blown away by his teaching, and specifically, they were blown away because Jesus taught with this unprecedented authority. Their regular diet of preaching came from the scribes that they would hear every Sabbath in the synagogue, and these were men whom, as one person has put it, were in bondage to quotation marks. They just loved to quote their rabbinic authorities. So they would say, you know, Rabbi Hillel says this, but on the other hand, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and then there is the testimony of Rabbi Eliezer. It was all rather confusing. It was certainly very secondhand, and it was probably quite boring, but none of that with Jesus. Completely different. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. So what we're going to look at this morning is the conclusion of this sermon, a sermon that has been referred to by many as the greatest sermon ever preached, and we want to see three things this morning as we look at this passage about Jesus' teaching and His authority as He taught. First of all, the breadth of His teaching. Secondly, the depth of His teaching. 
and thirdly, the benevolence of His authority. So the, the breadth of His teaching, the depth of His teaching, and the benevolence of His authority. So uh, please follow along as I read our passage. It's Matthew 7, verses 12 to 29. Uh, you'll find it in your orders of service. I'm reading this morning from the NIV. Verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Is trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Pray with me, please. May the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, first then, the breadth of Jesus' teaching. Look again with me at verses 13 to 14 near the beginning of our passage. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus here speaks of two roads, two ways, and he says that one of those ways leads to life, and one of those roads leads to destruction. Jesus uses categories here that I imagine are of interest to all of us this morning, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not, for the simple fact that no one here really tends to want to be on the road to destruction, do we? We would rather desire to be on the road that leads to life. So that Jesus here really is addressing one of the most fundamental needs and questions that we ask as human beings, which is how do I find a path that leads to a true and authentic life? How do we find the satisfaction and the joy and the flourishing that we have this sense that we were made for? And if that feels like a modern question, it actually isn't. It's as old as human thinking itself. And through history, we have many examples of thoughtful philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, to name but a few of the Western uh, examples in the tradition, who have asked such questions. 
But here it almost seems like Jesus jumps into the fray himself as he addresses the same issues that, that many ancient philosophers were addressing, that Jesus presents his teaching as a, very, as a way of life, as a philosophy of life that leads to life. Now, I have to confess that perhaps like many of you, I hadn't really thought of Jesus' authoritative teaching in terms of a philosophy of life until I recently read a book by the New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington entitled, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. For some of us, perhaps to call Jesus a philosopher sort of sullies his reputation because we don't have an awfully high view of philosophy or philosophers. Uh, Pennington mentions along those lines uh, a 1970 stand-up routine by the comedian Steve Martin in which he's reflecting upon his college experience and what he calls the intellectual thing. And in the routine, Martin observes how people forget most of what they learned in school. For example, he says, geology doesn't stick because it's all just a matter of, of facts and figures. But he says, philosophy's different. When you study philosophy in college, Martin notes, you remember just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. But here's the thing. Historically, screwing up your life was not what ancient philosophy was intended to do. Philosophy in the ancient world was the scaffolding, was the guide by which men and women sought out the path to flourishing and to happiness. It provided the vision of the good life. And consequently, it shouldn't surprise us that throughout the ancient world, and indeed all the way up to the modern time, Christians have thought about their faith not just as a religion, but as indeed a philosophy of life. Right after World War I, uh, some European archaeologists stumbled across the ancient city of Dura Europus, located in, in modern-day Syria, right on the Euphrates River. And amongst other discoveries, the researchers found a house church there, frozen in time since the second century AD. The walls of that church were preserved, and on those walls were painted images of Jesus, sort of like teaching tools. And amongst those depictions were pictures of Jesus as the Good Samaritan, and Jesus the Great Physician, and Jesus the Philosopher. Indeed, in all of the pictures of Jesus healing and teaching and performing miracles, he's wearing the telltale philosopher's robes. He's standing in the posture of a philosophy teacher. He's even depicted with a haircut that would indicate that his status was that of a philosopher. Now, you might ask, why would I try to make the case that Jesus' authoritative teaching should be understood as a philosophy of life? Well, Pennington answers that question by suggesting that the church has been diminished as a result of us losing this philosophy category or language to think about our faith. He, he writes that in, in losing this category, our Christian faith is often, often just becomes disconnected from, from so many aspects of our human lives. Christianity becomes merely a religion. It's reduced to the vertical dimension of our lives, and we fail to recognize the breadth of Jesus' teaching as a philosophy of life which permeates every nook and cranny of our everyday lives. It, it affects relationships. It affects issues of justice and money and our work and our time and so forth. And when we reduce Christianity like that, we end up looking to other sources sort of alternative gurus, as it were, to give us the wisdom that we crave. It's not that we can't find wisdom from other sources. 
It's not that we can't learn something from the likes of Mary Kondo or Jordan Peterson or whoever else you would count on your bench of influence. You can, of course, but if you find yourself constantly gravitating to what those people are saying, or your friends find that you're constantly quoting their words to you, or you find yourself thinking one day, you know, WWJD, what would Jordan do? then you've probably got a problem. Instead of going to Jesus and the full breadth of His philosophy of life, because Jesus' teaching encompasses that widest philosophy of life impacting every decision, every relationship, every thought, every word, every deed. But circle back with me to how Jesus describes this way in verses 13 to 14 again. Again, listen to what he says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, the way that Jesus describes these two ways is a little surprising, isn't it? Because the gate, Jesus says, that leads to life is narrow. That's not normally a a word that we would think of terribly positively. If I was to describe someone as narrow or narrow-minded, you wouldn't think that I'm paying a compliment to that person. And then in contrast, Jesus says the way that leads to destruction is broad. We tend to think of that word more positively. Broad-minded people tend to be pleasant people to be around. So the thing that looks very broad leads into this suffocatingly deadly narrowness And the thing that looks very narrow leads to this astonishing vastness and breadth and freedom. Some of you might, if you're a Doctor Who fan, that the narrow way is a bit like the TARDIS phenomenon. If you've never heard of Doctor Who, British TV character, travels through time, but he travels in this TARDIS, this, which is really just this glorified police phone booth, but the entrance is very, very narrow. But then when he goes into the TARDIS, it's massive inside. It, it's so vast inside. And so Jesus here is saying that if you take the alternatives to his teaching, while they may look very wide and open and affirming and spacious on the outside, when you get on the inside of those teachings, They're incredibly cramped and narrow. They lead to suffocation. In contrast, Jesus says, the gospel on the outside, with its exclusive claims of who Jesus is and what he came to do and his call upon your life, can look incredibly narrow. But when you come inside, you discover that it is incredibly spacious, unbelievably glorious in terms of a place of flourishing and of life. So there is this breadth to Jesus' teaching as it entails a whole philosophy of life as you read through everything that he says in his Gospels. But secondly, there's a depth to Jesus' teaching. You know, a while ago, Tara, my wife and I were watching a TV drama series uh, that a friend had recommended. But to be honest, after watching the first episode, we weren't really that sure that we wanted to persevere with the whole thing. It wasn't that it was in Norwegian with subtitles. We were okay with that. It was rather that while we watched this first episode, we just, it just felt like it assumed an awful lot of the viewer in terms of tracking what was happening and who was who in terms of characters. But we decided we would persevere, so we watched the second episode, only to realize that by me 
clicking inadvertently on the wrong icon on our TV, we had watched the eighth episode to begin with and not the first episode. Well, lo and behold, if you start with the first episode of a series and work your way to the eighth, it makes, it makes a lot more sense, just in case you ever find yourself in that situation sometime. But sometimes, getting a peek at the conclusion of, of, a, of something before starting the body of the work actually is advantageous and instructive. Perhaps not with drama or with fiction, but at least with nonfiction. Having an idea of the conclusion can sometimes give you a better sense of the arc of the argument, of, of the thesis. And that's because a good conclusion is going to tell me what the book's about. If it's in the conclusion, chances are it was in the body of the book. And sermons tend to work the same way. Conclusion will summarize what's been said in the body of the sermon. So here we are with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It covers an awful lot of, of territory. But, but as with any good sermon, Jesus in the conclusion, the part that we read this morning, is, is summing up what he's been saying up to that point. And he does so, as we just saw, by a way of series, a series of contrasting images. So we have the two ways that we've been talking about. And then he talks about two trees. And one of the trees bears good fruit, one of them bears bad fruit. And then he moves on to two houses. One has a firm foundation, the other has a foundation built on sand. But with each picture, Jesus is challenging his listeners to discern which way, which tree, which house reflects their particular situation. So think with me about, about this for a moment. Again, if Jesus is talking in the conclusion about two ways, two trees, two houses, then we should be able to discern those kind of two different things in the body of the sermon, right? So the question then is, okay, in light of everything that's preceded in the Sermon on the Mount, what exactly are these two ways? And many people conclude, well, that's a no-brainer. You know, we're in, the, we're in the category of religion here, and all religions do this. They separate people into two groups. You've got the religious and the irreligious. You've got the good people and the bad people. You've got the, the nice people and the nasty people. And so the common thinking goes, well, Jesus here must just be affirming the first type of person, the religious, the, the nice, the good, and condemning the second kind, the irreligious, and the bad, and, and, and the nasty. Those must be the two things that Jesus is contrasting here. The problem is that when you go back into the body of the Sermon on the Mount, you discover that Jesus is contrasting two things that are quite different to what many people assume. Because Jesus is not teaching in the body of this sermon that on the one hand are the religious people and on the other hand are the irreligious. He's not there kind of comparing those that we would consider the good people in life and the bad people in life. Actually, what we find is, is something quite different. And perhaps the clearest example of this comes in the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. Jesus is, is just about to teach on the Lord's Prayer, but just prior to that, Jesus is talking about prayer in general. But if you're familiar with this passage, you may remember that Jesus here doesn't contrast the good people who pray with the bad people who don't pray. No, he says to his listeners, you know, there are people who pray like this, but I want you to pray like this. And then he moves on to the subject of giving, financial giving. 
And you might think, okay, well, the contrast is going to be between the, the good people in the world who give and the bad people in the world who are stingy and don't give. But Jesus doesn't contrast those two things. Instead, He contrasts those who give this way with those Jesus says, I want you to give this way. So, in the sermon, Jesus is contrasting two ways, but it's not a case of one being good and one being bad. On the surface, they actually both look good because both of these two ways are doing the same things. They're, they're both praying. They're both giving to the poor. They're both doing spiritual disciplines. And yet, Jesus comes to the end of the sermon, and He says, one of those ways that I was describing in the body of this sermon is actually toxic. He says, one of these ways reeks like rotten fruit. One of these approaches to life is going to come crashing down. One of these paths leads to destruction. The big surprise in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that the people on the narrow way and the people on the broad way are actually doing the same things. They're doing the same things. They're praying, they're fasting, they're giving. So the question is, okay, well, what in Jesus' book distinguishes one group from the other, those who are on the way to life versus those who are on the way to destruction? And you realize that the contrast that Jesus is laying out is all about a posture of the heart. It's all about our motivations. You know, if you think about it this way, I mean, for example, here we all are this morning filling the pews in this building, and from a certain perspective, we're all looking pretty good. In fact, you are. You look marvelous this morning. Let me, let me affirm you for that. But, I mean, but then you think, well, okay, we're in church. I mean, by definition for some of us, we're thinking, well, I must be on the way that leads to life, right? I'm, I'm like the tree producing the good fruit. I'm on the house on the firm rock. Jesus said, well, yeah, not so fast, because whether it's coming to church or whether it's what you do with your money or whether it's how you parent your children, all these things we can try to look good and, and keep up with our neighbors and, and be perceived well by other people, but, but Jesus says, I'm, I'm not so much interested by what you're doing as why you're doing it. I want to understand the reason for why you do these things, for why you do your acts of piety, for why you, you act a certain way at work or, or in your home. Because he says, if, if you're doing these things to please other people or to impress other people, and it, he says it could be that if that's your MO in life, then you're on the broad way that leads to destruction. Your fruit stinks. Your house is about to collapse. You may be doing the right things in life, but you're not the right kind of person because your heart's all wrong. I mean, it's very, they're very sobering words. You see the difference? One, one, one way Jesus says uses God to get things, the other way uses things in order to seek God and, and to find God. One, one way is on the way that leads to life, one way leads to destruction, but it all has to do with the motivations. Same actions, completely different motives. It all has to do with the heart. So, you see, there's not only a breadth to Jesus' teaching. There is this depth, this heart depth to His teaching, that it penetrates to demand a certain posture of the heart. And you see that all the way through Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. But then thirdly and lastly, we come to Jesus' benevolent authority. Look with me at verse 24 and then verse 26. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Now, notice the intended emphasis here where Jesus brings focus upon himself. It's not just he says, I want you to do my words. He says, I want you to do these words of mine. That's perhaps a little subtle, but it's significant. Because in contrast to the scribes of Jesus' day and their endless quoting of various rabbis, Jesus is making the massively audacious and scandalous claim that his words, his words are authoritative in this life and in this world, that his words need to be acted upon that everything in your life and my life hangs on whether we do what Jesus says or don't do what Jesus says. He says the stability, the fruitfulness, the flourishing of your life depends on you doing what he says. No one in Jesus' day spoke like this or taught like this. Now, of course, Jesus would not be the first teacher nor the last to command obedience to his teaching, and to make promises about the benefits of such obedience. So what would make someone choose to put into practice Jesus' words to follow after Jesus' instruction and teaching versus going after the teaching or instruction of someone else in this world? Now, I'm guessing that some of you here today who wouldn't claim to be Christians at this point have, have read or heard through the grapevines something of Jesus' commands, and in your mind, the word narrow would be an appropriate description of those commands. And I can tell you that it's not just you who feels that way. All of us, those of us who are Christians, feel this way because His commands challenge all of us in these arenas of life, of integrity and sex and politics and our work and consumption, money and the like. And the question is, why would you ever submit yourself to to his teachings which do feel hard? Well, let me suggest that our willingness to do the what of Jesus' teaching depends on our understanding and grasp of the who of the teaching and the why of the teaching. Jesus understood the significance of the who of the teaching, which is why as you read through the Gospels, Jesus' teaching, no matter what the subject matter is, constantly keeps coming back to teaching about himself. Have you ever noticed that? As you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly talking about himself. You know, it's said that there are two types of people in this world. There are here-I-am kind of people, and there are there-you-are kind of people. And you probably have a sense of the people that you meet, kind of which way they go. We certainly all, I think, quickly recognize the here-I-am kind of people. They're the people that you meet at a party, and you're talking to them for a few minutes, and then they say, well, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? And we tend to steer away from those kind of people if we can. But here comes Jesus, and it's all about himself. He's constantly referring to himself, teaching about himself, drawing attention to himself. In fact, the self-centeredness of his teaching was one of the things that immediately set Jesus apart from all the rabbis of his day, all the philosophers of his day. They tended to be self-effacing. The rabbis of Jesus' day would, would point people away from themselves, and they would say, well, yes, that's, that's the truth as I understand it. You should follow that. That's the way. 
And then Jesus comes along and he says, this way that leads to flourishing, I'm that way. This truth that you're called to live out in your life, I'm the truth. This life into which I'm inviting you, which leads to flourishing, I'm the life. Jesus understands that the first reason for doing what he says, doing his teaching, is because of who he is, that he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the the son of the living God, he's the promised king, he's the Lord of life himself. That The reason you and I should do the what of his teaching is because of the who of the teaching, which is Jesus himself. But the second reason to do what Jesus taught is is the why of his teaching. You know, it's possible for authority to possess the sheer power to coerce obedience. But Jesus doesn't want to coerce obedience from us to his authoritative teaching. He wants us to choose. He wants us to desire. He wants us to long to follow the breadth and the depth of his teaching, which is why in all, in all of Jesus' teaching, indeed in his entire life, there, there is this kindness, there is this grace, there is this benevolence connected to his authority because his mission was to exercise his authority in teaching and in life on our behalf for us, out of love for us. Jesus was a here-I-am kind of person, but only because he was a there-you-are kind of person. That The reason Jesus would keep talking about himself is because his goal was to get you and me onto the way of life and off the way of destruction. And it's only through him that that can happen. So let me close by just giving you one example of how Jesus taught this, and it has to do with this gate that we've looked at a number of times, and we're going to read these verses uh, once more, verses 13 to 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I wonder if you've ever thought about where the gate is located in this picture. Because for actually both the road that leads to life and the road that leads to destruction, the, your entrance through the gate here precedes your going on the road. Notice that? I mean, other philosophies and religions will, will tell you that this life is all about doing your best, trying your hardest, trying to keep the rules. And if you do that, you may qualify to get through the gate that's at the end of the journey. So first the road, if you're good enough on the road, then you can get through the gate. And Jesus turns it around and says, no, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. He says, my way involves first entering through the gate and then following the road beyond the gate that leads to life. So then the question, of course, is, well, what specifically is this gate that you have to enter through before you can embark on Jesus' way of life? Well, thankfully, Jesus gave us the answer to that question. He does so in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus announces, I am the gate. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in, and they will go out, and they will find pasture. Jesus says this gate that you need to enter through in order to find life, he says, it's me. 
that I'm the gate. He says the way begins by entering in and coming to this salvation. But that, of course, demands a certain posture of the heart, doesn't it, that we were thinking about earlier? It demands a certain humility, where you and I are willing to recognize that we don't have the authority in and of ourselves to gate crash, to go through this gate, based on anything that we've done, our record, our reputation. But the only way to go through this gate is by trusting in this Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus not only taught authoritatively, He lived authoritatively. And in an act of supreme authority, Jesus came not only to teach the way, but to do everything necessary for us to get on the way to be the gate by coming and in that act of supreme authority, defeating our greatest enemies of sin and of death through His death on the cross so that He could bring us onto that way of life that leads to life. It's on that way that you and I discover the beauty of the breadth of His teaching and the heart-probing depth of His teaching. And it's in the experience of entering into this life and discovering the spaciousness of this life that He offers to us that you and I discover that, yes, it's this authentic Jesus who alone has the authoritative words of life for you and for me, and that He is indeed the watertight person against whom, in the end, there can be no argument. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You not only for what You've taught authoritatively, but all that You have done for us authoritatively, and for how You have laid out for us this way of life that leads to life, and how You call on us to humble ourselves before You so that You will lift us up, and how You present Yourself as the gate through whom we come in order to know this life. We pray, Lord, that for those of us who have entered the gate and found the way that you would help us to, to live on this way as you have called us to do. And for those of us who still have not gone through that gate, that there might be something today, whether in the sermon, in the songs, in the readings, in the prayers, that calls us to take that step. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.